So take my life, transform, renew and change me that I might be a living sacrifice. Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that it may come so alive by your spirit that it might be an agent of that transforming work. Please turn back to page 1117, which is our passage for tonight in Acts chapter 20. And I was preaching last week, we were trying to discover who were the pagans to whom Paul was proclaiming Christ. And the danger was, of course, that we opted out and it wasn't us. Well, I hope it wasn't, but I hope we discovered that there was a lot in it to help us to understand modern pagans and how we may reach them. Uh, the title of that night is Preaching Christ to Church Leaders. And therefore, I guess immediately most of us begin to opt out yet again. It's not me. I'm not a church leader. We kind of half look at the various people around the church who might be church leaders and hope they will listen. But in fact, I would suggest to you, there's rather more to it. Who were these leaders? You've got your Bible open. Notice they're called in verse 17, the elders of the church at Ephesus. If you glance on to verse 28, the same people are called overseers, which is the word bishops. And in the end of the same verse, they're called shepherds of the church of God. So the same people are elders, bishops, and uh, pastors. You can actually argue that if only we'd understood this, church history might have been very different. Same people were all three when I was ministering in Edinburgh, there was a time in Edinburgh when they were contemplating taking episcopacy, that's having bishops, into the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And because I was an Anglican, I was asked to speak at meetings from time to time. And Margaret, my wife, discovered something that helped me enormously. Uh, we, she told me that in Scotland there's a weed which grows, which is called bishop weed. Now you can understand the church history, John Knox and all that, so this weed is called bishop weed. What uh, they didn't know in Scotland, but my wife informed me accurately, I believe, that what they call bishop weed in Scotland, in Lancashire at least, we call it creeping elder. Now if you, if you, try, to work, if you try to work out the connection historically... And more than one place I went to, they'd whisper in my ear, I'll swap you my creeping elder for your bishop weed any time. But there you are. But they were the same people. Elders, bishops, pastors. In fact, if you look at it, it's actually all to do with not what status they have. God deliver us from status and hierarchy in the church. It was what they did. Elders, they were mature, not necessarily old in years. After all, these Ephesian elders couldn't have been all that mature. They'd only been Christians for a matter of a few years at the most, but they were mature, they were elders, they were bishops, that is, they had some care for others, some oversight, and they were pastors, that is, they had to feed them, uh, to teach them. And I want to suggest to you that we, most of us, now begin to think, hmm, maybe I'm involved. Uh, some people I'm trying to help, pastor, teach, uh, I want to mature in the faith. So I'm in it. Uh, well, just take it further. This is the only time in the Acts of the Apostles where you get a sermon preached to Christians. There you are. That's a unique moment. Nowhere else, always they're talking to mixed gatherings, preaching to non-Christians. Here is a sermon. Luke was there. He has all the details spoken to Christians. So most of us certainly are here. We're, we're Christians. And again, if you're not, well, it's good for you to hear what Christians are meant to be like. And that's why I asked for John, the passage in John to be read, which I find fascinating when Jesus tells us that we're to expect the kind of things that Paul had when he was a minister in Ephesus. 
And uh, isn't it intriguing? When Jesus told those words about the suffering and the persecution they would soon uh, receive, who was the main culprit for giving them that persecution? Saul of Tarsus, who became the Paul, who learned what it was like at the other end. So here we are. We, last week we were in Athens, where Paul never meant to be. From Athens he went on to Corinth, a very immoral city. To play the Corinthian was to act in immoral ways. We've learnt nothing over the years. They knew it all then, and we are still no better. And into that immoral city went Paul, determined to preach Christ and him crucified. And for 18 months he ministered in Corinth. Then he moved on to Ephesus, which was his longest ministry, about three years. He was at Ephesus, and this was a great pastoral challenge. And during the time in Ephesus, he decided God had called him to move on. If you have your Bible in front, notice it's rather intriguing how it goes. It says in chapter 19, verse 21, when he was in Ephesus, with all the challenge of these three years, he said, Paul, it says, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, and after that, I must visit Rome also. That was strategy. That was planning. He wanted a gospel at the heart of the world in Rome. Now in our verse chapter, we're looking at verse 22, chapter 20, verse 22, he can say, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Which is right. Both are right. We're not compelled by the Spirit so we don't have to think or plan or make decisions. Uh, we have to make thoughtful, strategic decisions about our futures, about where we witness, about the kind of people we're meant to be. But as we do prayerfully, we will find that compulsion. And do remember, as Paul set out to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome, he knew here it was going to be hard, verses 23 and 24. He knew it was going to be tough. He knew he was actually following in the footsteps of his master, who set his face to go to Jerusalem, and the end of that was the cross. So here is Paul, and he gathers together at this strategic moment these church elders who travel 30 miles to meet with him. It's a worthwhile conference, and that's why he speaks. Now, I would suggest to you there are five directions in which this passage looks. First of all, we look backward, the backward look, that's verse 18 to 21, where Paul will remind them, will you notice the phrase, you know, which comes in verse 18? Nowadays, with our slack talk, we say, you know, which doesn't mean anything at all. It's just sort of punctuated, you know, you know, you know. When the Bible says, you know, it meant, you know. And Paul says, you know how I lived among you. And he'll repeat it later on, you know uh, the kind of man I was. Verse 20, what I preach, you know. As you know, I spend most of my time now tripping around the country preaching. It's comparatively easy to disappear to Norfolk for a few days and preach, or to go off to uh, Aberdeen and preach and so on, because people don't know me. I'm just the visiting preacher. I am a preacher, good, bad, or indifferent. But I was here nearly 30 years. That was different. It's a joy to come back. And here's Paul saying to these people, I was with you for 30 years. I lived amongst you. You know the kind of man I was, but also you know the whole time I was with you in Ephesus what it cost. Look at verse 19. I serve the Lord with humility and with tears. Yes, you can talk about your humility. It all sounds wrong, doesn't it, to say I was humble. 
But humility isn't pretending I'm no good. Humility is saying I was prepared to do anything. Later on he tells us he, he worked with his hands so that he might free them for the gospel. I serve with great humility and with tears. That comes again later on in verse 31, warning you each one night and day with tears. And there it was because of the plots of the Jews at the end of verse 19. Always remember, when his fellow men opposed him, the Jewish people, he longed to win to Christ, so much so that he would say in Romans 9, I would be willing to be accursed if only my own people could be believers. That's how much he loved them, and so that's how much it hurt. It's one thing to be attacked by the enemy. It's another thing to be attacked by the people you love most of all. And so the plots of the Jews upset him. What did he suffer when he was in Ephesus? Well, if you know your Bible, the one thing you probably remember most was that what happened in the previous chapter when they had this great gathering in the amphitheater in Ephesus. And if you go on one of these tours, uh, they'll show you where it was in Ephesus. And that's where he stood in front of a crowd for three hours. The rent-a-mob crowd, great is Diana of the Ephesians. People always get upset when commercial interests are disturbed by the gospel. That's when the opposition came. They couldn't sell their little images anymore. And so there was a great upsurge against. Paul wasn't actually there. They saved him, but he knew it was going on. But that wasn't the worst. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 32, comes a very intriguing verse where he says, writing about Ephesus, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Wouldn't you like to know, did he literally mean it? Possibly. People were thrown to the wild beasts and often martyred, but I think it was metaphorical. I think it was a, a symbol of what it cost him. He was opposed so much during these three years. You see, our Lord's words were being fulfilled. But that's not the worst. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 1, just a verse, couple of verses. Listen to these words. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. We were under great pressure in Asia, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Now, I don't think he had been sentenced to death. The phrase isn't that at all. It is that he was so weighed down, so under pressure, that he really was deeply depressed and depressed and suicide would have been a nice way out. That, I think, is what he's saying. That he went through all that. That's what it was costing him. All the pressure coming to bear. So he looked back. That was the context of that ministry. And what was the content? Oh, the context was because of the content. They wouldn't hound him at Ephesus just because he happened to be travelling through as a Jewish preacher. It was what he preached that made that happen. So what was the content of the ministry? Quite straightforward, verse 20. I've not hesitated to preach anything that will be helpful to you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And later on, uh, he will talk about preaching the whole counsel, the whole will of God in verse 27, which he proclaimed. You got the message? The content of his message was he preached God's will, whatever it cost. He called for repentance and he called for faith and he did not 
change his message to make people feel good. We've been reminded by Paul already, we live in an age, nothing changes when the message is whittled down, is diluted, is changed. We are meant to fit so into the context of our day, we contextualise our message, which sounds good. If it means we put the message in a context that people understand, so be it. But it doesn't mean that. Contextualising means that we actually change our message to make it suit the feelings and the cultures of our day. For Paul, he was never ashamed. That's what he preached. That's how he went on. And that's what he did. His great ministry was a ministry of preaching the word of God. Sadly, over the years of my ministry, I've seen preaching diminish. And I'm thanking God that more recently it's been pushed up again, being upgraded. And I thank God that Paul sets the example. There is how he looks back. Secondly, verses 22 to 27, the forward look. There's the backward look. What's the forward look? Well, the forward look for the leader in verse 22 to 24 is this willingness uh, to set forward to the future. Whatever it might be, he was compelled by the Spirit. That's fine. And he was going to Jerusalem to to take gifts for the Christian church in Jerusalem. And he was going to go on to Rome. He thought to preach. And how long did it take him to get there? Years. And why did it take him years? Because he spent most of his time in prison. Place after place, and he gets to Rome, not as a preacher, but as a prisoner. So, as he looked to the future, he knew where he was wanting to go, but he knew it was going to be tough. And so he points out in verse 24, what a challenge. I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race. It's the word that's used by Jesus from the cross. Finished! I could take you back more years than I want to add up. When I stood in a pulpit in, in, in Edinburgh and I was preaching on my, 30th, my 33rd birthday. And I knew that at that age, Jesus, about whom I was preaching, was on a cross. And it came home to me in a rather vivid way because I was that age. Here was Jesus, age 33, shouting triumphantly from the cross, Finish! Come on! I was just starting my life's ministry. It was all ahead of me. How could a man say, triumphantly, finished? Well, if he'd come to be a preacher, think of all the sermons he might have preached. If he'd come to be a healer, think of the thousands he might have healed. But if he'd come to die for my sins, the great theme we looked at this morning in Romans 5, then he could say finished. And because he was obedient to the task which he finished, Paul would say, and humbly underneath him I would say, that's what life's about. That's what lasts. Finish the race. In Philippians 1, Paul, in a rather nice bit, Paul said, what shall I choose? To, do, to depart and be with Christ is far better. Shall I choose to stay or to die? I've always thought, well, come on, Paul, you don't have the choice. You either will or you won't. But anyway, he, uh, he, he thought, if I had to choose, if I really had to choose, which shall I choose? And he says in Philippians 1.20, the only thing is that Christ will be exalted whether by my life or by my death. I know I've mentioned the pulpit here before, but I, and I didn't mean to mention it, but it's come to, and I think I must mention it. A dramatic day in Edinburgh, one of the most dramatic days I remember chairing a meeting in a hall in the centre of Edinburgh, 
when we were celebrating that a number of people had been brought out of the Congo, when there was a terrible, terrible massacre, and this missionary couple had been gloriously brought out, and we met to celebrate, to say thank you. And they gave the testimony. And out came a little lady, and I was chairing the meeting. Please, could I say something? I'm always suspicious of people who want to say something at meetings that they haven't been planned before. I'm, I'm, and that's not my scene. So I'm, my immediate reaction was, I, uh, I'm not sure. But she looked terribly innocent and harmless, so I said, okay. And very movingly, she said, uh, I wish you to know that my son or daughter, I forget which, and husband or wife, were killed in the Congo. They didn't come out. And I want to say to you that we prayed about them as well. But I also want to say that I thank God that God used their death as he's used these people's deliverance to bring glory to him. And down she went, the most still meeting I've ever chaired. And of course, the people who've been delivered were delighted. And they said, you know, yes, we, we accept that by life or by death. They have been delivered, praise God. These have been faithful to death, praise God. Are we willing to say that for ourselves? So for the leader, the forward look was that. For the church, verses 25 to 27, it's interesting. I see that as being a word to the church. Verse 25, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom, about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Interesting, if you like to be pedantic, they probably did see him again. He wasn't infallible, even Paul. He probably did pass that way, but that's a matter of reading of the Acts of the Apostles. But it's, what, is in, what is intriguing, and he only came home to recently preaching on this elsewhere. A man came to them and said, isn't it odd? What did they remember, these people who heard this talk? Glance on to verse 38. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see him again. Isn't that odd? Of all the tremendous, powerful things he said, the one thing that worried them was that he wouldn't see him again. Because they were like us. Ordinary people. And the thought that actually their great leader, their great pastor, was not going to be there. How would they cope if he wasn't there? And you can see that sort of feeling, how dependent they were on him. And so he reminds them, I want to remind you, verse 26, I was innocent, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. What a thing to be able to say. It's very much the note of the watchman in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, which I'm studying at the moment in my morning Bible studies, my Bible reading. Ezekiel 33, if the watchman proclaims there's trouble coming and they don't listen, then their blood's on their own head. But if the watchman doesn't, then their blood on his head. And if a preacher doesn't tell his congregation of the awesomeness of rejecting Christ and people reject him, then their blood's on their own head. If I don't tell them, if I duck it because I want to be popular, their blood's on my head. And Paul is saying to these Christians, I've been innocent, so I'm saying to you, I'm not hesitating to proclaim the whole will of God. Now it's over to you. And how desperately important this church remains true to the word of God, which I trust and pray it always will. How important it is that you and I who go out from this church to serve God wherever, wherever, will always be true to the same message. That's the forward look. What God did through Paul in three years, he wants to do increasingly 
in Ephesus. Third, the inward look. Backward look, forward look, backward look, forward look. Now the inward look, verses 28 to 31. Now he gets to these elders and says, first of all, take heed to yourselves. Keep watch yourselves. We're coming to Advent very soon, and a challenge to watch and pray in the light of our Lord's return. Will somebody please uh, devise some way of this resurgence of interest in Advent? We now have Advent candles and Advent calendars. All fine, but they all end at Christmas. Advent has become a countdown to Christmas when Advent was meant to be a countdown to the Lord's return. Now, how you manage a calendar which dates to the Lord's return, I have no idea, but it would be nice to consider the possibility. For that's what it was all about, the prayer book. Advent was preparing for the Lord's return, not counting down to Christmas. Other people do that. And he's saying to these Christian leaders, watch and pray First of all, think about yourself. Take heed to yourselves the truth of their calling and the test of their calling. The truth of their calling is so vital. Why is it vital? Just look at that verse. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, look at it, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which literally he bought with the blood of his own one. And therefore, I take that to mean, obviously, the blood of Jesus. So the whole of Trinity is in that verse. It's uh, God who made them overseers. It's the Spirit made them overseers. It's the church of God. And it's the people who were redeemed by the blood of the Son of God. What a responsibility. And the truth of their calling. With all that responsibility, how important. But will you notice that there's the enabling in it. If the Holy Spirit's made you that, He will enable you. Did you see the command, the double command at the end of John 15, the gospel we read? You must bear witness and the Spirit bears witness. He bears witness, you bear witness together. The truth of their calling. But the test of their calling. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And even from your own number, people will arise. If you watch the future of the church in Ephesus, very interesting. What else do we know about the future of the church in Ephesus? The pastoral letters to Timothy. He was the man in charge in Ephesus. It was a church which had Paul, it had John, it had Timothy, it had Ephesus. It really had a great list. And yet, the pastoral letters to Timothy are full of this. Beware. Names given of people who are leading them astray. And then you get, when is Ephesus last mentioned in Scripture? The book of the Revelation. Chapter 2. The first letter at receive a church and the risen Jesus. And it's fascinating to me. It says, you, you, you have tested the false apostles. You have listened. But in the process, you've lost something else. You've lost your first love. And I think it's a lovely health warning. Nothing must diminish from the fact that you and I must be absolutely true to Scripture. That we must be aware of false prophets. And we're asked to do it without losing our first love. Shouldn't be difficult. Because the great truths for which we fight are truths which should make us love him more. The fact that he is the son of God who gave himself for me should move me to love. But should move me to stand firm. I never read these verses without remembering the great moment. When I was a young curate 
in St. Helens in Lancashire, where I started my ministry, I was cured in charge of a little mission church called St. Mary's St. Helens. It was a great little place. And I was about to preach my last sermon. I'd been there for three years, and I had to preach the last sermon. This is the arrogance of youth. I wanted to find a passage in the Bible where one man had been for three years and preached a farewell sermon. And I found this. Now, the parallel between Paul and Ephesus and me in St. Mary's St. Helens was none at all, apart from three years. You understand that. But it seemed to me just right. So I preached this sermon with great passion a long time ago, and then I got to the awful bit, which I remember now. I can still see it. When I got to the bit which says, after I leave, savage woods will, will come in among you and will not spare the plot. Oh, it was worse than you think. He was actually sitting over there, was the one I was, I was facing. The new curate was coming to take my place. And I had to point out that I'm sure it had nothing to do with him at all. So that's the snag of uh, preaching out of context. But uh, it was important. The test of their calling, it will always be tested. And the test, let's face it, it comes from outside. Oh, if you think that's Paul, isn't he hard stuff? Jesus says false walls, dressed in sheep's clothing. John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. And there are false shepherds out there who just turned a blind man away because he'd followed Jesus in chapter 9. They don't care about the sheep. They're only bothering about their position. You think that's died? You're living in cloud cuckoo land. And the challenge is that we need to be aware of the fact that it were, we are living our Christian life and the test will come from outside and from inside. So we come finally to the last two looks together. All right? It's short in your thought. The backward look, the forward look, the inward look, the upward and the outward look. Verses 32 to 35. You see, the upward look is, I commit you to God and the word of his grace, the unchanging word of grace. Now, I love that verse. It would have been easy for Paul to say, I commit you to God. That doesn't mean very much. Well, everybody talks about God, or 99% of them talk about God, but who, what God is and what he's like is another matter. It's just their God, any God, some God. Some God doesn't do anything. Do you see it? I commit to God and to the word of his grace. I only know what God is like through the word of his grace. So he commits these Ephesian elders to God's word as their strength, building them up, sanctifying them, as well as being that which they proclaim to other people, the unchanging word of grace. Do you know that bit in John's Gospel, in John chapter 15, the chapter we read, but not in the passage we read? Jesus said, if you abide in me and you wait for it and I abide in you and you get a surprise. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Not just some mystical relationship. It's the word of Christ dwelling in me richly which will enable me to go forward. The unchanging word of grace and finally the unchanging work of grace. It's almost an anticlimax. Paul gets to the end of his sermon and says, oh, I want you to remember that I did work with my hands. He was a leather worker in order that he might give time that he could preach the gospel free of charge. What a life that was. We think we're pressurized. My, he was pressurized. And he would say, look, I want everybody to know I have never used my position to further myself. This is a challenge for all of us. And he remembers the words of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You go back to your computer and 
puts it in and find out where it's more blessed to give than to receive comes in the Gospels, don't bother, you'll waste your time because it's not there. We have no idea. It doesn't, it's not one of the words in the Gospel at all. But it sums up the kind of words that Jesus did say in the Gospel and it's a reminder. What are we doing as we serve God? We're going to live out in our lives by the way we live, the words we speak. Never word and life against each other, always together. No, you won't win people by your life alone. They need to hear what you believe, in whom you believe. Challenge the students in these days when Christian unions are under pressure. These could be good days for Christian unions. The pressure might be actually good for us in an odd kind of way. But it is a reminder that words and life go together. Of course, if my life doesn't correspond in any way with my words, they won't listen. But life alone will change nobody. And how does it end? Those five looks. Then, verse 36, when he'd said all this tremendous stuff, he knelt down and prayed with them. In a moment, Paul's going to pray this in. But I hope we'll all pray it in, remembering that we are somehow, even now, elders, bishops, pastors. One day, some of us may be very significantly one of those. And certainly we should pray for those who do have the very solemn responsibility. But pray for yourself. And as you come to communion, it's a lovely thing, the word goes into the communion. Do you see the five looks? The backward look? Communion, we go back. Where do we look back to? The upper room? No, not really. We look back to the cross. The upper room points to the cross. We look back to the shed blood and the broken body. We look forward to the day when Christ returns. There'll be no more communion in heaven. But till that day, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And we live in the light of it. The inward look. Yes, I need to remember that I be walking right with him in that word of grace we had this morning. But I come aware of my need for his cleansing and renewal. The upward look. Well, we look to the Lord. I always find it very odd. One of the words they, they use of the, of the person who celebrates community, they call him the president. What an awful word. We are not presidents. It's the Lord who's the president. Uh, and we look up to him and his word. And finally, the outward look. You see, we come together. It's so simple, we forget it. As a minister, I do all the things that we do in church, apart from communion, on my own. I pray on my own. I read the Bible on my own. I sing hymns on my own. Best way for me to sing them. I do. I sing hymns on my own. But I never, ever, ever take communion on my own. I have never given myself bread and wine. I never will. Because communion's communion together. And so the challenge of these verses as he speaks to church leaders and to Christians is quite straightforwardly, together we look, together we stand, together we pray, together we go in the footsteps of Jesus. Now let's be quiet and then Paul will lead us in our prayers.